Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Lisa Palmer, is author of the new book, Hot Hungry Planet, The Fight to Stop a Global Food Crisis in the Face of Climate Change. As the title suggests, the book examines the intersection of climate change, population growth, and the politics of food, all of which we discuss in this episode. Lisa is a journalist who writes for both popular and academic-facing outlets. She's been covering climate change and environmental issues for many years, and she discusses how her upbringing in an agrarian community informed her career path. We have a good talk about how fighting food insecurity requires a very broad-based approach that touches on politics, technology, women's empowerment, and many, many other issues. And before we begin, a big thank you to everyone who has reached out to me to suggest a topic I should cover or an individual I should interview. I love hearing from you. I do this for you. So if if you have someone on your mind or a topic on your mind, just send me an email. You can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the contact link, and, and that sends me an email. Love to hear from you. Also, if you'd like that Twitter list I've been talking about of people I follow on Twitter who help keep me informed throughout the day on key debates, key issues, key events happening in the foreign policy world, just send me an email as well. I am happy to send you my list of key Twitter followers. Oh, also, speaking of social media, we have an Instagram page now, Global Dispatches Podcast on Instagram. Go check it out. All right. And now here is Lisa Palmer. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, on a global scale, uh, the climate is changing, and you know rains are coming at various times that didn't happen in the past in the same way. We have such a fluctuation in extreme events, and so that's... Anytime there are things that are happening that have that really happen on an extreme scale and haven't really happened before all that frequently, um, it puts a lot of stress on our agricultural system. And so that's one thing that's happening as well. We've, we have a number of uh, changes in temperatures uh, globally, uh, especially what affects crops even in the United States are higher evening temperatures so that the crops don't really cool down enough to allow for some of the kernels to form. And so these kinds of effects are happening globally. There's floods during the wrong time of of the season uh, that haven't happened before. Uh, And so sometimes the crops just are not able to survive the floods. Other times uh, we've had just more cycles of drought. And uh, as you know, with, with drought, sometimes we can just lose an entire crop um, very quickly. 
So, I mean, you have this this phenomenon of, of climate change happening at a time when the world is experiencing really rapid population growth, as, as you document in the book. So, like, what you have these kind of two forces kind of combining. I mean, are, are we, like, in for, like, a Malthusian future? Like, what what will come of this? Well, I think that we're seeing in some areas already that uh, people are – looking at the solutions, um, because that's, there's really no other option right now. They're looking at the solutions of how are we going to feed this growing world population. There's increasing pressure on, uh, right now, with migrations uh, and the World Food Program, how we're getting food to people like that. I don't really address that in the book, but, you know, that is, you know, another concern. Uh, Right now, the growing population is, we're not seeing that the population pressures are putting a lot of stress on the agricultural system currently, but it will increasingly occur as we use more land to, to um, raise, produce food, as well as um, for cities. And so the combination of those two things will use land in new ways. And that, um, in addition to that, we've, you know, it's not just the number of people or the fact that we have climate change, we have a rising uh, um, rising incomes globally, and that's a good thing. People are diversifying their diets, uh, and, and and as more people earn more than two dollars a day, for instance, um, they're they're choosing to buy a more diversified diet, including more meat and more milk and dairy. So um, that you know, and with more meat comes more land use and. And down the line, we need more calories. In what ways, I should say, are are technological innovations helping to increase food supply in like your in in a hotter planet, in a drier planet, or a planet with less predictable um, climate patterns? I think there's definitely more of a need for um, improvements in irrigation. Uh, just yesterday, I was at the World Bank, and they were having um, an you know innovation summit around foods for food security. And so there were some, several speakers there who were talking about their innovations. And one uh, was speaking around irrigation and, and, and not only irrigation, but also the way that the soils are, are treated or not tilled. Um, and so the combination of those two things and what crops are grown where and if we irrigate crop, crops um, that are more high value and high calorie, you know, there's, there are different choices we're going to be having to make um, around those those crops, but also the technology that we use. Um, and we, we, where can we get that technology in the most affordable way? So are there examples of um, those kinds of technologies being deployed to um, like useful ends? And, and sort of, can you, I guess, maybe walk me through ways in which either governments or individuals or entrepreneurs are adapting and, and are using kind of new and innovative technologies to um, increase yields or or increase the nutritional value of the crops they're yielding? Uh, one of the places that I traveled um, in the last couple of years was India. And I went there specifically to look at their Climate Smart Villages program that they've been uh, developing throughout the country. And the reason I did that is because they are looking just at these very innovative uh, ideas around how we're going, how they're going to raise crops more efficiently, with uh, water more, use water more efficiently. How can they even um, apply 
less um, fertilizer or apply fertilizer more efficiently because uh, they're having trouble with uh, groundwater getting polluted from overuse of fertilizer. And as well, they're experiencing uh, stronger periods of heavy rainfall. And so some of their crops are being inundated very quickly. And, uh, and some of the fields get flooded. But um, when they have more organic matter, for instance, in the soils, the, the fields can drain and not and it won't ruin the crops. And so here, what I found is that they were using and uh, in a very uh, coordinated fashion the variety of technologies. Uh, one was a special way of planting uh, crops like rice amid the wheat stubble that was left over from the previous season. So that wheat stubble provided some organic matter um, to enrich the soil. Uh, the other piece was uh, there are, were fields that maybe were not as level as possibly be, could be leveled. And so they're using a laser-guided land leveler to make their fields uh, quite even. So when they did irrigate, there was no wasted water. Um, they're using handheld uh, meter or handheld uh, guides to determine how much um, fertilizer to apply to fields. They're even using drones on that level to take pictures of fields to see where uh, a farmer might want to use more or less or advise farmers on, on using more or less uh, so, fertilizer. I mean, so they're, they're using all of these technologies, but they're using it in a concentrated or a, a coordinated way. I mean, is it fair to say that we really shouldn't be alarmist about global food supplies in the sort of face of, of a rising population and a changing climate precisely because we have at our um, disposal, all these kind of technological innovations that could um, mitigate some of some of the, the 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 negative consequences of climate change and help increase yields and and you know make us more productive and more productively use uh, the, the the farmlands that we have. I don't, yeah, and the thing is, it's not just being more productive; it's becoming more resilient to the negative effects. I think that that's the key here that farmers um, globally are taking actions to make sure that when extremes do happen, that they can weather these extremes. Um, that, and in the ones that do have resources available to them are doing that. There are plenty of places where they do not have the resources. They don't have the, the support either with policies or a coordinated effort with a good cooperative center like they do in some of the villages I visited in India. They have a strong cooperative, uh, farmers cooperative, where they share equipment um, and they have good policies to help with some of the financing of it. And so, you know, I think it's, I think the solutions are there. They just need to be paired up in a way that makes it sense, you know, makes sense for a certain crop or a certain region or a certain sort of type of growing system to um, bring it all together. And, and so how did you decide or, or think or get inspired to, to write your book, which covers all these issues we've been talking about? Like what, what made you uh, want to put this all down in a book? Uh, well, I, a couple of things happened. One was a bit of a surprise, which as a journalist, when you hear things that 
are kind of surprising. It's it's one of those things that keeps eating at you and you want to learn more. And so for me, it was, um, I had been, at, um, I attended the Vermont Law School's Environmental Law Center summer program where I studied some of these issues around changing, um, around food security amid climate change. And, you know, when the people, all the different various people that I talked to, you know, after that, whether they were um, plant physiologists or agricultural economists or people with, with expertise on land use, some were expertise on, had expertise in just in um, political science and food security, they all seemed to be pointing at somebody else in a different field that had the answer to solving this problem, that they were, they were not sure that their own field or their own area would be able to handle this. And to me, that that signaled the sense that it was a it was a problem that they couldn't tackle on their own and that they were looking and perhaps needing to join up with other disciplines or other areas or, so, uh, so or like, create like, a bigger program. Like like the biologist was saying, I don't know, ask the lawyer. Exactly. And so um well, and, and then t- later t- t- on I one of those conversations sort of specifically, like like how how like what what was the biologist referring to? You know, what like why why did, was that the case? And like what what? But yeah, so the plant physiologist has said really the problem is we need to increase opportunities for women, uh, and and, and gen, you know, especially make have opportunities for women in in sub-Saharan Africa. We need to have opportunities for women to have education and greater access to improve farming methods um, in sub-Saharan Africa, and then also have. Uh, greater uh, than talking you know, further conversation led to oh yes and then also these women also will need to have greater uh, control over the spacing of their families which they don't have potentially that area specifically I was talking about didn't have a whole lot of access to health care and so it kept going on and on and on like that um, other places were saying oh they just really need to focus on um, improved varieties of uh, drought, you know, drought resistant corn. Um, and that was somebody, you know, who didn't have any kind of expertise in agronomy. So it was really interesting. So, so that was the, the light bulb going off. Was there like an actual light bulb going off moment for you in these conversations? Uh, sometimes. And then, and then I, later on, I talked to somebody who said, actually, sometimes it's, it's, it's the, maybe the real answer is just knowing that, you know, everybody thinks somebody else's field of study is easier. Their own field of study <laughs> is is too hard. So um, progress in another field of study might just be easier. So, but I felt that yeah, there was there's definitely a light bulb going on. And when I started looking at it further, I did find some of these places that were had this more joined up thinking. They were working together already. So they had people with you know in the, in, with water resources management working with. Uh, the maize and wheat growing um, or improvement uh, associations, along with people who were working on groundwater supplies and agronomy practices. And so, you know, they were they were starting to do some of these uh, actions. And it was right at the same time that they started, uh, I guess, getting more interest around climate smart agriculture, uh, which I guess the goal is to not only have less 
of an impact on greenhouse gas emissions, so like reducing the emissions that come from the agricultural sector, but also become uh, more resilient in the face of, of climate change. So on both ends of, of the climate spectrum. So how, how did you go about reporting the book then? If, if you have all these disparate linkages that you're trying to draw together from people who are not at all in each other's fields, like what, what, how do you go about, you know, reporting, reporting those, those linkages? Well, that I had to focus on the people who are working at the front ends of this. And so that's really where the stories lie. Um, the, I, I went to Columbia, for instance, to people who were changing their the ways that they were um, growing crops to be able to deal with uh, a much uh, varied uh, landscape. They, some of them couldn't, uh, this one farm that I visited could no longer uh, raise uh, coffee. She was in the, actually this region where they have their main coffee growing, um, I guess it's a museum, their national coffee growing park. Uh, that's it, sort of the history of coffee growing in Colombia, but this in her region she couldn't grow it anymore because the t- temperatures got just a little bit too hot, and then the rain wasn't coming when they needed it, and they've had some series of droughts, and so uh, the El Nino there is, has had been quite strong for a number of years, and so she had ended up changing her um, her farm to having some shade grown coffee, but also raising some livestock. And she was raising the livestock in an agroforestry uh, type setting. And so the the cattle were being shaded and they were able to eat. The cattle was able to eat some of the plants that she was growing to feed them just right there amid the trees. And so I think for that, it was really a light bulb of where she, she had to make some changes, but also had to make changes to see how she could get her children back to the farm because her son and her grandson had both left the farm for other business opportunities or work opportunities abroad um, and in the city. And so she wanted to get people. So there was, the, was even the migration issue there was came to, um, to be part of the story. And she was able to really get back her farm and make it profitable and make it sustainable and not having to buy a lot of inputs or, you know, chemicals or types of things that she had to feed her, her cattle, um, because everything was right there. Uh, she was very successful. And, um, and I remember just sitting on the, her porch and she would run, she ran back to her backyard and I didn't, and she was gone for a little bit of time and she came back with, um, a big piece of fruit and a spoon. And she, we shared, uh, piece of fruit that she had grown. She was just so proud that she was actually able to completely feed herself and her family on her farm for the first time. But how scalable are, are um, projects like that um, to, to sort of these kind of sustainable farming models? You know, when on the other hand, it seems that we're, you know, our, our, our consumption, at least in the developed world, is driven by like agribusiness and, and processed foods. Yeah, the, the scalability is an issue um, in some places for sure. I think that the, the points that I was trying to make around that um, system in Latin America, um, which is also being scaled up in places like Rwanda and um, Burundi, where they have these issues of uh, very small pieces of property and uh, the desire to uh, raise, you know, um, 
produce and livestock on a small piece of land. And that was the point of, of that, that piece that I was writing for the book, that some of these interventions, you know, they're not going to be applicable everywhere. In some places, they're not scalable. But for farms and for places that need to have more vertical or intensive um, production on a small plot of land, I mean, there are plenty of places around the world that are doing that. Um, the global agribusiness is not going to be a place that's, that will use that. However, they've, they are, there are places now that are looking at some of these, uh, I guess, more of a variety, um, integrated landscape approach where they are integrating livestock with other types of production on a farm. So, you know, I think that the trend is really to be scalable will largely be based on what consumers want. Um, so I would love to learn more about how you got involved in, in these issues, how you became interested in these, these issues. Do you have an agrarian background? Do you grow up on a farm by chance? <laughs> well, I'm just throwing that well, out there. I don't know. Just throwing that out there. Well, um, I grew up in Minnesota and, uh, I did not live on a farm, an ice I lived farm. In town, but my, um, but my, both of my parents grew up on farms and they were, uh, the, they, I guess their their older siblings, um, were the ones who inherited the farm, just I guess, is, which is typical. Um, but we went out to the farm frequently. My mom had a garden, and I would go out with her, you know, all the time to my grandmother's farm to help her. And so, uh, and I still, when my family still owns farmland in Minnesota, so I do have a sense, you know, I, I have a sense of really what it takes to raise food. And I have a great respect for farmers the world over. And the ones that I've met were, I mean, across the board, incredibly respectful and earnest. I think the one thing in common that I saw when visiting all of the farms and farmers and talking with them was their sense of, um, I would say, being experimenters. If something works, they're, you know, they're willing to experiment with it. And if it's something works, they'll they'll try it and and um, and go forward and move forward with it. I think that that's kind of what will be key for the future is if farmers you know see these new technologies or see these new new things that, that are coming their way, experiment with them and find success. And that's uh, that will be good because they're. They're used to that. On your your family's farms or the farms in the community around which you grew up in Minnesota, I mean, did you sort of looking back now sort of see the the, the beginnings of, of climate change and the effects that it have had on, on food production in that region? I wouldn't. No, I don't think so. And not, not you know, back when I was growing up. I mean, the difference really from then to now, when I was maybe what twelve, thirteen, my first job in the summer was to work on on farms, and the it would go like this: the kids in, who wanted to work on farms would show up in, you know, a parking lot of a gas station or something. You know, this is central meeting area downtown, and we'd ride out to the farm and work from like seven a.m. to one p.m. and we would pick weeds or detassel corn where there and there was types of corn growing that shouldn't be growing in a certain spot. And um, that's what we would do. With the advent of Roundup and um, genetically modified seeds, we no longer had to ha have these people go out and, and, and weed um, soybean fields. 
Uh-huh. So, you know, there, I, that was a, a big change when I later went back to visit my family and I, and I realized that that's, that was sort of one, one type of change that has happened. Um, you know, since then, I think there were some, a couple of times when I, when it really hit me that climate change would be really tough on the parts of the Midwest where I grew up. And that was when they had these searing heat, just enormous heat waves. Um, and a lot of the farms in that area have these confined feedlots where the, the cattle um, are in these big um, containments. And some of them don't have a lot of shade or there's not good uh, uh, circulation of, of air. And there's you know, a couple of instances where a farmer lost almost all of his cattle in a barn because it just got so hot. And you know, that's and that was really a shame. It was one of the, the points where I just, um, you know, there's it's just a really sad thing. And that's what happens all over the world when there's a heat wave like that. But you know, I and that's what. Um, is expected to occur more frequently. And so they've got to figure out ways of dealing with that. So at what point, having grown up in the, in the farming community, did you decide that like policy journalism was, <laughs> was a, a way to kind of address some of these larger questions around the sustainability of, of farms and, and farming and, and glutes and food supplies? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, it, it wasn't quite that type of leap. I started. It never is. I, it never is, and so. But I started writing when I started um, working as a journalist. I was a general assignment reporter, and so I wrote feature articles, and I covered education, um, and I covered a variety of you know, local happenings. And back when local newspapers existed. Back when local newspapers, yes. You know, when I, I, I covered some regional news for the Boston Globe and some of the feature articles for the New Bedford Standard Times. And while well, growing up in Minnesota, I was a cub reporter for my high school when I was still in high school. And so um, I've always had this search for stories. But probably about 2008, I really became focused on the environment. And I started writing almost exclusively about the environment and about sustainable business. What, what sparked that, that shift in 2008? Uh, you know, I wanted to be some, do something that was that where I could create a body of work and specialize in, in, on something that was meaningful to me. And I felt that that it was largely an area where uh, I didn't know a whole lot about environmental journalism. And I had the opportunity to as a Knight Fellow, attend a specialized journalism program um, that focused on environment and climate and reporting on climate change. And so from, I guess that was really the start of a, a long um, relationship with the Society of Environmental Journalists who have helped foster my uh, environmental reporting from then on. And so then that sort of segued into this larger bit about sustainable agriculture and then the policy space. So what were some of the other big environmental stories that you were working on back in like 2008 and, and, and a few years ago? Oh, um, well, the, the, I, for a long time, uh, wrote around uh, issues on climate change. And so uh, uh, just from about every angle of climate change, climate change and religion covering the how various religions were, were framing climate change. Well, what's that one? That was amazing. Yeah, that 
that uh, story, or mostly, I think I did a series of stories from various religious perspectives, um, from ranging from you know Episcopalians to um, uh, I don't know, just uh, just the the range of the well, gamut. Well, well, I mean, is it? I mean, it seems to me like like uh, that. Um, the sort of difference between the actual religions like Christianity or Judaism or, or Islam or, or Buddhism are less acute than perhaps um, differences in political orientations of the people that are practicing them. So like a politically conservative Jew might be as on the same page as like a politically conservative Christian uh, when it comes to climate change, as opposed to um, there being some fundamental difference between how the religions per se look at the issues. Yeah, they, you know, I, I did a story on um, the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology, which has really looked at this closely. Uh, they've they've had climate they've been collecting these climate change statements from the world religions for oh geez maybe dating back to 1990 or something like that. So there's been a long evolution of of how different religious people in the religious community address the environmental issues. I haven't been covering it more recently, and I think that there's even more of a various points of view on that. So I'll just leave it at that. Um, but that was really interesting piece of, of journalism that I was covering at the time. I think that uh, there was an effort to, especially from the, um, from the Roman Catholic um, religion to make climate change. Uh, and I think that that's what the Pope has done now to make climate change um, a lead issue in the church. Have you seen that since uh, Pope Francis has done that, there have been any kind of fundamental shifts on, on anything? I mean, is the Vatican like playing like a, a more prominent role in like the Paris negotiations or anything like that? I think that they've, they've been more engaged, but like I said, I have not, because I've been writing on the, writing my mm -hmm. book, I have not been able to follow it as closely as I'd like to. Um, so, so, uh, on on the the book and, and on some of the themes and, and topics that you that you touch on in the book, I mean, one which you mentioned earlier is um, sort of shifting patterns of wealth in in the world. And you said earlier that one consequence of that, particularly as countries and, and as populations in Asia and in China and India become more middle class, they'll seek more meat in their diet, right? And and that mm -hmm. requires more land use. I mean, are you? Like, are you seeing sort of conflicts arise because of, of, of this kind of desire for having more land for, for cattle grazing as opposed to other uses that it had been before? Or like, what are some of the implications of that that you've discovered from your reporting? Well, the, I guess the implications, uh, that means that we're losing a lot of forests. Um, forests can can go for a number of reasons. They can Forests can be used for... Uh, land for agriculture, forests can be used for cities, the growth of cities, and forests can be used, obviously, for paper and pulp, right? So those are the main areas um, of, of the way forests are used. Um, but for a rising um, global population that's hungering for more meat, as well as for more um, oils in their diet, and their area is in Indonesia, where the forests are being used for um, I guess, being transformed into palm oil plantations. And so uh, I guess th that change in land use in, um, our, in the forest is an area of 
big concern in, in some places. In Indonesia, that played out um, with the huge forest fires that occurred uh, following, uh, I guess, a, period, a long period of drought. And when the, um, I guess, the, their normal rainy season didn't start, there was a strong El Nino that was um, preventing the normal rainy season to start. And so that ended up having a cascade of effects of, of fires um, and pollution that was in, you know, the triple digits of, you know, normally I think the normal, I guess a normal hazardous range in some areas is a, a rating of 300. Um, their air pollution quality was in the 2000s. And so um, there are areas where schools had to be closed and airports had to be closed. And um, so, you know, having that type of conflict um, in the future where it's having a widespread effect, not only within a country, but across other countries because of how land is being used or changed is something that I hadn't expected to find um, that are expected to, to observe. But that's something, you know, because it's not, an, it's not something that typically one thinks about when you think about a, a rainforest being changed into palm oil plantation. But what happens is that the, there, the peatland where the palm oil was growing or the, the, the forest had been um, deforested and the peatland, which is underneath it, acts kind of like coal would when it burns. It burns underground and it's very hard to put out. Only when it rains quite heavily does the rain, does the, does the fire go out. And so um, in those areas, they had uh, emissions, I guess, the, from these fires that were just enormous um, in terms of their scope and um, the number of days that they were on fire. Um, and they finally went out. But even after they had heavy periods of rain, they were some still smoldering underground. I know some of my favorite coffee comes from Indonesia, that very region that was that was affected, the Sulawesi, I, I think, uh, area. Um, yeah. And and I remember talking to my like my local coffee hipster coffee merchant. And he was complaining about the, uh, the 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 smoke and all the burning that you just described. Um, so uh, looking like sort of surveying around the world, are there places of particular concern in for, uh, that that you've identified that are perhaps particularly vulnerable to this kind of climate change food supply nexus? Oh, geez. I mean, the sub-Saharan Africa comes to mind immediately. Um, it's vulnerable for a number of reasons. Um, it's vulnerable because of uh, the need to increase education and women's empowerment because uh, the women there are some of the main agricultural producers, yet they don't have the same type of access to the education and things and even land rights of um, improving the types of land that they're farming. They don't have the access as much as men do to um, markets or to um, technology. And so, you know, improving the, those kinds of, that type of access um, to those programs and to development, uh, is really going to be important, especially because it will make them, you know, if they can get there, 
that will make them far more resilient to climate change. Um, I think that that's the adaptive capacity that they can have will be a huge factor. I think that um, it's, you know, we're now starting to recognize that it would be you know, key for us as for the U.S. for our own um, security and and that's kind of how it's being played out right now for our own security is to make is to help share our resources to have, help other places around the world be more food secure. Um, and I guess just to to conclude, so um, what sort of impact do you expect this book to have? Your book to have what kind of impact do you hope it to have? I hope people will wake up to the fact that it's not just one solution or one thing that will help us address this, this global problem. Um, it's going to take a lot of different things. I, I, I think it's, it's when we add all of these little pieces up and working together and uh, looking at the types of solutions that, that uh, even you know, researchers, and that's where I am right now with as a senior fellow at the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center, that's sort of an maybe one of the ultimate turning points in my career is to look at how uh, the researchers there are, I, I guess, maybe I would want to say, because they're key to looking at these um, problems and finding solutions, because they are able to include everybody uh, that needs to be on a certain research team from a variety of disciplines, whether they're policymakers and NGOs or government agencies, and then, you know, ecologists or uh, land use um, or geologists, and to look at some of these various problems or concerns in a holistic way. I think that they're by able, by, you know, because when the people are doing that with, uh, it takes the blinders off. They can see the solutions from many angles and then start working towards them. Uh, well, Lisa, thank you so much for your time and, and for the book. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, I think your readers will be able to find the book at, or your listeners will, will be able to find the book at uh, hothungryplanet.com. And I think it comes out on May 9th. Exciting. Congrats. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Lisa and oh, for premium subscribers, I have some episodes upcoming for you. A couple of them should be really interesting. One on the history of Vladimir Putin, who he is, where he came from, how he rose to power, how he consolidated power, all in uh, about a 20, 25 minute conversation. So that'll be for your ears only if you're a premium subscriber. I'm also going to take a dive into the concept of sustainable development. What do we mean when we say sustainable development? How did the concept of sustainable development arise? What are the sustainable development goals that are driving the global development agenda until 2030? And how are they shaping the politics of doing good in the world and helping people develop economically? Stay tuned for that premium episode as well. Thank you all. If you want to become a premium subscriber, hint, hint, you should. Uh, there is a link in the description field of this podcast or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and follow the links from there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. Bye.